Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Father, we are so thankful for your word. You said you have exalted it above your name. For we know you not just through the creation and through the conscience, but through your holy, infallible, inerrant word. Thank you that it is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. You liken it to bread, milk, honey, meat, that it feeds the depths of the soul. And so Moses said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Thank you that by imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God, you've allowed a second birth to happen. And you've told us that like newborn babies, we are to long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we can grow and respect our salvation. So we just ask today that you would bless the reading and the study of your word, that as we set our minds on it, that we would gird them up for action as Peter commanded us, that we would not daydream, but that we would focus carefully on what you've said, and that because of our exposure to Scripture today, that we would be more like the Lord Jesus. Help those who have never met him, who have never found your forgiveness. May today be a turning point. May the Spirit speak to them. Thank you for his ministry to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And thank you, too, that we are sanctified by his ministry. And so, Father, come and help me. Spirit of God, fill me, anoint me, and use me, that together we might lift up the Lord Jesus, and I ask in his holy name, amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to the letter of James, the second chapter. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we've been working our way chapter by chapter through this short little book. It's only 108 verses, and many of you have told me you're reading it once a week as we are in this for several more months to come. This epistle that God has given us is given by a very practical man. He is a man who wants to instruct us, but with a view towards taking that instruction and putting it into practice. He's not interested in stained glass theology. He's interested in grass-stained advice. He wants you to take what you believe and put it into your behavior. He wants your creed to match your conduct. In a word, James is interested in a faith that behaves. Now, if you read the book in one sitting, which I want to encourage you to do if you've not started, it'll only take you around 12 to 15 minutes. And as you read it over and over and over again, you will see that this particular section that we are in today is really the heart of the whole epistle. Now, if you know anything about me, then you know that I believe with all my heart that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And yet that doctrine is being challenged in our day, maybe like never before. Uh, there are people who don't believe it. Listen, if you don't believe 
that you're saved by grace, if you're putting your stock in some self-improvement program, both sides of the Bible are crystal clear you will never meet the living God in His grace. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. That's God's heart. We just read that His ways are not like our ways, and it was in the context of forgiveness. And yet there are people who are muddying the grace of God. N.T. Wright, a so-called theologian, is now put a different spin on how a person is justified. I call him N.T. Wrong. He's just wrong in some of the views that he is propagating. Mormons. We had four Mormon missionaries one night in a meet the pastor, and they brought up this very text of Scripture. They love to use it to say that, no, the evangelical faith is wrong, that you're not saved by grace alone through faith alone, that good works help the process. Add to that, we have the new social justice movement, which is nothing new. It's just the old 19th century social gospel that Bush introduced to the American church, that God's purpose through Jesus is not to change a life, but to change society, that He didn't come to save sinners. He came to save the world, the culture. Nothing could be further from the truth. Add to that, you have aggressive Roman Catholic theologians like Carl Keating, who teaches that the gospel that we preach is a distorted gospel. He was once an evangelical, left the evangelical faith, and gave himself to Roman Catholicism, and now denies the very faith that he was raised on. And in his book called Catholicism and Fundamentalism, that's how he refers to us as a fundamentalist. Listen, historically, the term fundamentalist was a great term. It was used at the turn of the last century to distinguish those who had embraced liberal theology from those who believed in the fundamentals of the faith, and so they were called fundamentalists. Today, obviously, it has a different connotation. But in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, he says this of evangelicals. They say that we say, he writes, that all true Christians, regardless of how they live, have an absolute assurance of salvation once they accept Jesus Christ into their hearts as their personal Savior. But is that really what evangelicals believe, or is that a straw man? Now, again, if you know me, you know I believe with all my heart that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And yet the title of this morning's message there in your outline is not by faith alone. And the title comes directly from our texts of Scripture from James chapter 2 and verse 24. Let's begin by reading our passage. I hope you have a Bible. If not, you should come to meet the pastor, and by God's grace, we'll give you one. James chapter 2, beginning now in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without daily clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? 
You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And now verse 24, where the sermon title comes from. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, as you read and reread this letter, you discover that James is writing to a group of people who prided themselves on an orthodoxy but they lacked orthopraxy. And so the big idea of the whole epistle, but especially this, the heart of the epistle, is that our beliefs should match our behavior. And if we really believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, if we believe that God is gracious, if we believe the Bible is true, if we believe that God will judge us based on what we've done with Jesus, then our conduct will somehow sync up with our convictions. And so James is writing about a person whom he has said in chapter 1, thinks himself to be religious, but he's really not. He wants to take the person who is a professing believer and ask them to take a hard look at their life. Does he have a baby faith or does he have a mature faith as he writes to Christians as well? Is it a real faith or is it a pseudo-faith? Is it a professing faith, or is it a real, life-changing, possessing faith? Is it just a sane faith, or is it a saving faith? And so again, this section, in my judgment, comprises the heart of the epistle. And it's one section of Scripture that you need to be able to take apart and examine and explain, because if you haven't encountered it already, you will as you evangelize people. And you will meet people, too, who need this epistle because they have a false assurance of salvation. People who say one thing yet do another. People who claim they are Christians but really are not. People who think they are saved but they are really lost. Now, as you can see from your note-taking outline, I've divided this section, as James divides it, into two portions. In verses 14 through 17, James deals with a faith that is worthless. And then in verses 18 through 26, he deals with a faith that works. One is saving faith, the other is pseudo-faith. One will lead you to heaven, the other will lead you straight to hell. So let's first examine a faith that is worthless. When you study this epistle, you immediately pick up on the fact that this man is an incredibly logical thinker. He's a great communicator. And so the Spirit of God chose to use his personality to inspire this short little letter. And of course, in this particular section, like he often does, he presents an argument, he then illustrates the argument, and then he applies it to our lives. And again, his purpose is so that we will not miss what the Spirit of God wants to say, and so he does it not only once, but he does it twice. And I hope you're listening because Jesus said at the judgment, there's not going to be a few, but there are going to be many who profess to know him, who have an orthodox theology, but who have never really been changed, and they are in for the shock of their lives when he says, I never knew you, depart from me. 
So James is going to ask and answer the question, what is the relationship between faith and works? What is the relationship between your creed and your conduct? What is the relationship between your belief and your behavior? What is the relationship between a faith that is worthless and a faith that works? So let's consider first the argument as it is presented. That's where we want to start, the argument as it is presented. Point A on your outline if you're taking notes. Now, to introduce his argument, James asked two rhetorical questions that demand not only an answer, but a careful, thoughtful analysis. Question one is found in verse 14. He asks, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Underline the word says in your Bible. He's describing a man who has words without works. And so he asks the question, what use is it? The ESV renders it, what good is it? And of course, the anticipated answer is, it's not any good. Question number two also comes here in verse 14. Can that faith save him? Essentially, he is saying, can that kind of phony faith save him? And of course, his answer is, no, it cannot. Now, in Greek, there are several different ways in which you can form a question. In one structure demands a positive answer. The other structure demands a negative answer. James is using the latter structure here. He frames the question in such a way that the answer is absolutely not. That kind of phony faith cannot possibly save him. It doesn't matter how loud, how often a person may repeat it. It is still a phony faith. Now, please understand the Bible is crystal clear that salvation is not merited. The Old Testament teaches that. The New Testament teaches that. There are many today in the world who are trying to be saved by obedience to the law. The law is God's schoolmaster to lead you to faith in Christ. It was not given to save you. It was given to condemn you. It was to show you that there's a problem on the inside. And so Paul will affirm in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a gift, and like any gift, it's not merited. It's not earned. Someone else pays for the gift. It's free to the recipient. Someone else paid for your salvation. It's free to those who receive it by faith. And so the Bible nowhere teaches some kind of self-improvement plan. In the book of Ephesians, Paul will write, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It, meaning this whole by grace through faith process, salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. And so when a person truly receives Christ as their Savior, when an individual by faith receives the gift of God, eternal life, they become a new creation, they become a new person on the inside, and with that new nature, they want to please and serve God, not to earn His acceptance, but because they have it. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. Faith spiritually speaking, obviously is invisible. I mean, just look at me. Can you see my faith? Can you take a scalpel somewhere and cut me open and say, there it is? No, you cannot see it. You cannot see it in the conceptual realm, but you can see it by what it produces. 
By the way, Jesus makes this exact same argument. James, his half-brother, no less received it from the Lord, and the Spirit of God inspires him to write about it again. Hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 9 for just a moment. Matthew is a Jewish gospel. It's written to Jewish Christians to give them a polemic to defend to their fellow Jewish brethren why Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah written of in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 9, and notice if you will, verse 2. He's in a place called Capernaum. And God willing, we're going to Capernaum in the fall. It became the hometown of the Lord Jesus, raised in Nazareth, but Capernaum becomes the place, his headquarters for a three-plus-year ministry. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, "'Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven.'" And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your heart? There is a picture, a snapshot of his omniscience because as God, he was able to read, yes, even their thoughts. Now notice the question he asked in verse 5, which is easier to say? Circle that word say. We've been seeing it here in our epistle that James has given us. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Which is easier? How would you answer that question? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because how in the world would you know whether or not it's true? But so that you may know that the Son of Man, one of the messianic titles given in the prophet Daniel, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up. And went home, but when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. In other words, Jesus does what they can see so that he can prove what they cannot see. And that's precisely James' argument. Don't tell me, show me. James is writing to tell us that while faith is invisible, it ought to show itself in a very construct, visible way. A private faith ought to show itself somehow publicly. And if it never does, then it's a phony faith. It's a pseudo-faith. It's not genuine faith. The Protestant reformers taught it in this way. People attribute this to Calvin, but you can find it nowhere in his writings. But you can certainly, they quote him as saying it, but show me if anyone listening online, anywhere in the world, if you can show me the place, I would love to know because I've yet to see it and I've read his institutes cover to cover. But nonetheless, you are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, you might not be able to find a Protestant reformer who can say those exact words, but they taught that, that you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The doctrine of sola gratia, sola fide, you see two of the five solas on the stained glass window behind me. Those are biblical doctrines formed in Latin, grace alone, faith alone. And if you have a true faith in the Lord Jesus, it will not be alone. It will change your life. And so the title of this morning's message. May I remind you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we've seen it even more in the last week, that the world around us is weary of words. They've seen every rhetoric show coming down the pike of people who say they are Christians, but they are starving for reality. 
They're looking for a man, a woman, a teenager who not only says what they believe, but they live what they believe. So that's the argument as it is presented. Second there on your outline, let's think about the argument as it is illustrated. James now takes the premise of verse 14, namely that a faith that is invisible cannot save, and he illustrates it with a hypothetical situation. Follow along here in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, there it is again, underline that word says, he's talking about profession. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? Let me bring the illustration to our day. You've had a hard day at work. You've come home. Your wife has prepared a great spread. You've had a good meal. You're ready to sit down in that fat, overstuffed chair to rest and to read a good book. And suddenly, just as you get into the novel you're reading, the doorbell rings, and you think, oh my, who is that? My shattered nerves, why are they always bothering me? You get up, and you answer the door, and it's a brother from the church, and it's cold outside. It's 10 degrees with a windchill of two below. He has no coat on, and he says, my friend, I wondered if you could help me. I don't have a coat. I could really use one. I don't need anything fancy or new. If you've got something out in the shed, just anything, could you please give me a coat, something to cover myself up? You piously raise your hand and say, let's pray about it. And you say, be thou closed, and you slam the door. So you go back to your overstuffed chair, and you start reading again. And when you believe it, the doorbell rings again. Oh, boy, what do these people want? They're always bothering me. And at the door is a sister from the church with a little baby in her arms. And she says, I hate to disturb you, but me and my baby, we just haven't eaten today. And we're wondering if you might mind sharing a little food. Oh, nothing fancy, just some leftovers, just a little something to hold us over till tomorrow. And once again, you get very religious. You say, well, let's pray about this need. And with that religious piosity, you raise your hand, you close your eyes, and you say, be thou fed, and you slam the door. And James simply asks, what kind of faith is that? What good is it? What does it profit? And of course, his answer is, it's not any good at all. Can that kind of faith save him? Can that kind of phony faith bring him into the kingdom of God if it has no works? And of course, his point is, no, it's an empty faith. Those are empty words, that empty words do not fill empty stomachs, and pious statements do not clothe cold backs. A declaration, a profession without a changed life is a phony faith. That's all it is. Now, I want you to pick up on three clues that are very important in these two verses. The first observation I want you to notice is that the illustration that James makes concerns a brother or sister in the Lord. He's not speaking of just anyone who shows up at your front door because he wants to drive home the point. He's dealing here with a brother or sister, with a fellow member of the body of Christ. Now, certainly, the Bible does not limit our compassion to our fellow Christians. 
but it certainly puts a focus and an emphasis on there. Paul will say, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. By the way, the Apostle John echoes the same truth in his first epistle. Listen to these words. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, talking about Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, when you become a member of the body of Christ, you assume an unlimited liability to every member of the body of Christ. So here in this verse, there's a second observation I want you to notice. He's talking about someone without adequate food or clothing. See the word there, food? It's the Greek word gumnos. It's typically used in the Greek language, or the word, excuse me, for closed is gumnos, and it's used of someone not who's stark naked. Now, I know the Old English translates it naked, and it technically can be used in that way, but context provides the meaning, and clearly, he's not speaking of someone who's stark naked, though understand in the 17th century, the British people would understand that it could carry different meanings. We maybe not so much today. But he's describing someone who's not fully clothed, someone who's lacked covering. And so he is also speaking of someone in need of daily food. And again, the word that is used is not speaking of someone who is in the realm of starvation, but someone who is out without the daily supply of food. In fact, you might want to circle the word need in verse 15. I have it circled in my Bible here. And then the word necessary in verse 16. James is talking about the basics. He's not talking about a person who doesn't have a nice car or computer or the latest electronics or cell phone. He is talking about the absolute essentials of life. Third, I want you to see that he is describing a continual plight. He uses what the linguist would call a present active subjunctive, which means it indicates a a problem that has been going on for a period of time. Now, that's the context of his illustration. So having presented the argument in verse 14, the illustration here in verses 15 and 16, he now applies it in verse 17. So we come now to the argument as it is applied. Verse 17 says, even so, here's the application, even so, If it has no works, it is dead being by itself. See, the person who sees one in plight and simply says, be warm, be filled, God bless you. He only has a verbal faith. It's not a real faith. You might want to underline those two words, by itself. That's critical. He's speaking of someone who has a mere profession because that which does not produce a changed life is a dead faith. It is lifeless. It is unable to save. Listen, not all faith is what we would call, quote, unquote, saving faith. Some faith is pseudo-faith, just like some gospel preaching is phony gospel preaching. When Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
Paul says some are preaching a different gospel, but it's really not gospel because there's only one gospel. There's only one true gospel. But like he says to the Corinthians, there are men out there preaching who are preaching not Jesus, but another Jesus, not the one that is represented in Scripture. Likewise, there are people, James is arguing, who say they have faith in Jesus Christ. They say they are born again. They say they are saved. They say they are on their way to heaven, but they are really not. It is a dead faith. It is intellectual only. It is in the mind. They may know the doctrines of salvation, but they've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Real faith always brings a changed life. So that's his first argument. You're with me? A faith that is worthless. Second, in verses 18 through 26, he presents a different argument. Not a faith that is worthless, but a faith that works. A faith that works. Now, in this section, he follows again the exact same progression. He first gives the argument in verses 18 and 20. He illustrates it in verses 21 through 25, and then he applies it in verse 26. So you can fill in those blanks if you're concerned. So the paragraph that follows, by the way, is one of the most important passages in the New Testament that a Christian needs to be able to explain. It's not if are you going to get questioned over this text. If you're engaged in active, ongoing evangelism, it is when are you going to get engaged in this text. Many non-Christians will throw it up in your faith to either say their way of salvation, faith and work saves is the right way, or they will just dismiss the Bible altogether and say it's contradictory, it's therefore cannot be trusted as the Word of God. Listen, even Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, had tremendous difficulty with this paragraph of Scripture, so much so that at one point in his life, he said the book of James should not be part of the canon of Scripture, that it was not inspired by God, that it was indeed a right starry epistle, to use his words. The more he thought about it, the more he studied it, he later learned that James was not at all contradicting the Apostle Paul, but they actually were defending the same faith. And so this is a very important passage of Scripture for those who call themselves evangelicals. So I want you to pay close attention. So let's look first as, at the argument as it is presented. The argument as it is presented. Notice, if you will, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I want you to notice two truths about this introductory phrase, but someone may well say. First of all, it is a future tense. And if you have the, uh, the NASB with marginal notes, if you look out in the margin, it gives you the literal rendering. But someone will say, meaning it's in the future. In other words, James is anticipating an objection to those who say, I have faith, so my works are not important at all. The second truth I want you to notice is that the word say is a recurring word throughout this paragraph of Scripture. He's talking about people who make a profession in word only, so much so that they make it an option. The New English Bible, which was a British paraphrase, rendered it this way. Here is one who claims to have faith and another who points to his deeds. 
But you see, the Bible never makes it an option. It is not faith or works. It is a faith that works. And so in answering his objectors, James says this, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, circle the word show me. You see, we're going to see that James is speaking of a particular kind of justification, what we might call a show me justification. Hold that thought. We're coming back to it. James is saying to say that you have real faith, but you do not have any works to prove it, then that is an empty faith. In fact, he will argue that is the same kind of faith that demons have. And so he says here in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. I don't know about you, but I love to read polls, and I'm fascinated by them. And I'm amused by some of the questions that they ask and some of the answers that they give. Gallup, some years ago, interviewed a number of people from various mainline denominations. And I suppose that's not a bad place to start. How many of you are here from a Baptist background? Raise your hand. The question that he was asking was, how many of you believe in the existence of God? Well, I want to tell you the Baptists came out on top. 95% of the Baptists said, there's a God. Well, isn't that neat? I'm sure God was sweating that one. How about Presbyterians? How many from the Presbyterian background? You know, God's fro- there's one there, one willing, two willing to admit it. God's frozen, chosen. You came in second. 92% of Presbyterians said, there is a God. How many Methodists? I hate to break it to you, only 85% of the Methodists said there's a God. How many Episcopalians? Not a one. Oh, there's one up there, 79% of Episcopalians. But if you could pull all the demons, 100% have an unquestioned belief that there is a God. Listen, God is one. The demons affirm that. We just studied in the doctrine of the Trinity in our course in basic discipleship that is available at our website, the doctrine of the Trinity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. The Shema, it's the great confession of faith that every Jewish person makes every Sabbath. And it's not unique to the Old Testament. It is affirmed in the New Testament. And so we saw clearly that as Christians, we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And even demons believe that doctrine, and they believe it so much so that Paul says they, uh, James says that they shudder. The word shudder is the Greek word frizzo. We can hear our word frizzy in it. It is used to describe a sense of horror where literally your hair stands on your neck. It bristles. And so there are some people who have never been born again, but they would say they are, but all they have really is a demon faith. They intellectually understand certain truths, like the demons believe God is one. They may have had an emotional experience like the demons who literally tremble, But it's never touched their heart as an act of the will. And James wants us to understand that you can have an impeccable theology and still be lost. Donald 
Gray Barnhouse, the great Presbyterian preacher, dead now for many decades of the 10th Presbyterian Church. He was a great pastor, the only Presbyterian I knew who believed that uh, in dispensationalism, that God was not done with Israel, but God had a future for the church, I mean, for the nation of Israel. But he so wisely said, there will be more fundamentalists in hell to start a good fundamentalist convention. Now, that's a profound statement. You see, the demons are very orthodox. And if you actually do a study when demons speak, for Jesus said the mouth speaks what's in the heart, it's fascinating to hear their theology. Here's a slide that will give you a breakdown of demon theology. For instance, in Matthew 8, 29, they believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. They shouted, what do we have to do with you, son of God? In Mark 1.24, they believe that Jesus is holy. The demon shouted, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 7, they believe that Jesus has authority to judge. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God, do not torment me. In Luke 4.41, the demons there in Capernaum believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent to save us. And so the demons, it says, were also coming out of many, shouting, you are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ, the Messiah. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 31, they affirm that there is a place of eternal judgment, a place of punishment for the wicked. And so it says they were imploring him, Jesus, not to command them to go away into the abyss. And then in Acts 16, 17, a demon cries out in the slave girl that is bothering Paul, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. My point is, is that you can be very orthodox. You can have a demon kind of faith and still die and go straight to hell. And that's what James wants us to understand. But we need to ask, why is it that a sound creedal faith does not help a demon? I mean, after all, a demon could sign the doctrinal statement of Community Bible Church. Suppose the devil this morning came down front during our invitation, and he wanted to join Community Bible Church. And I say to him, Mr. Devil, now you want to become a member of this church? Yes, I do. Well, let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Most certainly, I believe that. Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Oh, yes, I witnessed his virgin birth that night. Do you believe that Jesus died on a cross? Died on a cross? Are you kidding? I was there. Well, do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Oh, yes, I know that. He is alive, all right. Well, do you believe that he is coming again? Yes, I believe that, but I'd rather not talk about that. Okay, Mr. Devil, if we accept you into the membership of this church, are you willing to be baptized by immersion? Oh, yes. I know that's the Bible's way of baptism. I saw the Lord Jesus as he was being baptized. I was right there waiting for him to tempt him into the wilderness, the event that followed. Well, Mr. Devil, if you were to become a member of Community Bible Church, would you faithfully attend this church? What are you talking about? I'm here every single Lord's Day. 
I'm more faithful than a lot of your people are. I promise I will be here every single week. In fact, I'd be willing to sing in the choir. I might even serve as a deacon. I think I've met a few of them. Not here, of course. I would even be willing to fill the pulpit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, if his pastors also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. My, 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 Mr. Devil, that is a fantastic confession of faith. Let me ask you just one more question. Would you be willing to confess Jesus as Lord? And with all the sinister venom within him, he says, no, I will never confess him as Lord. I hate Jesus. See, it's one thing to be lost because you've never heard the plan of salvation. It is far worse to know all the right facts, to have an orthodoxy that has never changed you, that like a demon faith, it's intellectual, it's emotional, but it's never touched the will, and you've missed salvation by 18 inches. You have it here, but it's never touched here. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And so James asks a very perceptive question here in verse 20. Notice, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, that's the argument presented. So having presented it, he now illustrates it in verses 21 through 25 there on your outline, the argument as it is illustrated. Now, remember, in the last illustration, he dealt with a faith that is worthless. James used a hypothetical illustration of a brother or a sister in need of daily food or of clothing. But now James describes a faith that works, and to do so, he uses two real-life illustrations. The first illustration comes from the life of Abraham in verses 21 through 24. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? That's Genesis 22. You might want to put that in the margin. Genesis 22, it's key to understanding the argument and to understand how James is giving a different presentation of Abraham than Paul is. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Do you see that quote there in verse 23? The change of typeset, if you're a new believer and new to the scripture, indicates that this is an Old Testament quotation. Put out on the margin, Genesis 15, 6. Or if you have cross notes, just circle it among the cross notes. Very important, the order here. Now, with that in mind, let's read Genesis, I mean, let's read verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, hold your finger here for a moment in James, and I want you to turn to the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans, and I want you to go to chapter 3. By the way, Romans is one of the most detailed, clearest treatises on salvation in all of the Scripture, in all of the New Testament. Romans 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section. 
where he concludes that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 9 through 11 is the national section. He asks and answers the question, why is Israel in unbelief? And he shows how God elected Israel, chapter 9, how they rejected their Messiah, chapter 10, but how in the future he's going to restore them. And then 12 through 16 is the practical section. So right now he's in the doctrinal section, and he deals with three critical doctrines. And the first is that of, or the second is, the first is condemnation, the second is justification. And so I want you to see here in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, he's been arguing that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And he brings one of the most powerful sections of the whole epistle that's found in verses 19 through 28. I think a Christian should memorize it. I think a Christian should be able to explain it word by word by word. And he says here in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, put those two verses side by side in your mind. If you are here or watching on TV, you can see it on the screen. They seem to clash with one another. James says that a man is justified by works. And Paul plainly says here that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Now, who is right? Which is correct? They're both right. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. As we're going to see in a moment, they are complimenting one another. How do you know? Well, let me give you three undisputable reasons. Number one, in the first place, James is not writing to Christian Jews. Remember, that's his audience, as we know from the opening verse. The church at first was virtually entirely Jewish until Acts chapter 10. There were some Samaritans in Acts 8. But remember, the early church initially was all Jewish, all Jewish believers. And James is one of the first letters written in the New Testament. He's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered. And he is not writing this letter in which to contradict what Paul says. The fact is, Paul had not yet been on his first missionary journey. Paul had not written his first epistle that he doesn't write until after the first missionary journey known as Galatians. So he's not contradicting him. He's not writing against Paul. They're in full agreement. Secondly, in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, James oversees it. Remember, this is the Apostle James, who's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And he truly affirms that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul records that James gave him the right hand of fellowship. Why? Because they're in perfect agreement with one another. The third reason, and perhaps the most important reason, is that they are using the exact same word justified with two different meanings. Listen, very often words in whatever language you are dealing with, some words are determined by their context as to what they mean. So when I speak of a trunk, do I mean what's out in front of an elephant, what's at the base of a tree, what's behind a car, what's over a sailor's shoulder? It all depends on its usage. It all depends on its context. Please understand that Paul is using the term justification as a declaration, whereas Paul, uh, James is using the term justification as a vindication. Paul is using the term by which God declares you to be righteous, 
whereas James is using it to vindicate, to prove that you have received this righteousness. Paul is dealing with the holiness that God imputes to you when you are declared righteous. He made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Unless you have an imputed righteousness that is gifted to you from God, you will never see the inside of heaven. Whereas James, on the other hand, is dealing with the validation of that righteousness, where we justify or prove that we have been declared righteous in God's sight. Here's a chart that maybe will help you to sort out the two between Paul and James, two views on justification. Paul is emphasizing inward justification. James is emphasizing outward justification. Paul is focusing on the means of salvation, where James is focusing on the marks of salvation. Paul deals with the root of salvation. James deals with the fruit of salvation. Paul is dealing with a no-so salvation. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. People tell me all the time, well, no one can know. No, the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. He's dealing with a no-so salvation. The only way you can know that you're saved is if salvation is by grace and not earned by human effort. Because if good works in some way contribute to your salvation, you would never know until you died whether you did enough good works or the good works you did were done well enough. So he's dealing with a no-so justification, where James is dealing with a show-so justification. Paul is explaining justification before God. James is explain, explaining justification before men. So they are not soldiers in different armies. They are soldiers in the same army fighting back-to-back -back against different enemies. Paul is fighting against the false teaching that salvation is earned by works. James is dealing with the false teaching that that says a person can be saved without works. Listen, it is not faith versus works. It is a faith that works. We are saved by faith alone, but again, the faith that saves is never alone. Now, while we're here in Romans, just look across the page to chapter 4 for a moment. In chapter 3, Paul has explained that you're saved by grace apart from works. And some might say, well, this is an invention of the apostle. He made up this doctrine. This is not what God has always revealed. And so to prove that God has only had one way of salvation throughout all of time, he takes Israel's two greatest heroes, Abraham and David, and he documents from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that they were saved on the same basis that we're saved. Look at Abraham since he's our focus. Look at uh, Romans 4 in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the fle flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because you're not justified by works before God. For what does the scripture say? So to document that you're saved by grace through faith and not by works, he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what we just read in James 2.23. They both quote the same identical verse to make a different point. And the order is critical. 
Paul first quotes Genesis 15, and then he validates that the faith is real later in chapter 4, and he quotes Genesis 22. James takes it in reverse order because he's dealing with vindication before men, and he first quotes Genesis 22, and then he quotes Genesis 15. So what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, follow his argument, verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. You work hard all week. Your boss hands you a check. He doesn't say, well, here's a gift. Here's an expression of my goodness and grace. I want you to have it. You'd say, this is not grace. I just put in 50 hours. You owe it to me. I've earned it. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But here's the contrast. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So while Paul uses Abraham to demonstrate that a man is saved by faith, James uses him to say that a man is saved by works. Now don't get lost in this forest of theology. You need to understand this. James references two passages, Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, but the order is very significant. He reverses them. He starts with Genesis 22, and then he moves to Genesis 15. So go to the book of Genesis, chapter 15 for a moment, the book of Genesis. In the Jewish Bible, it's called Barashit, from the very first word, Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. And so they take their first five books and title them after the first words in each of those books. We take the title from our Greek Bible, the Septuagint. Genesis 15, look at verse 1. After these things, that is after the defeat of the five kings in Genesis 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram, I am a shield to you, your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O oh Lord God, that you, uh, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, that is Eleazar, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then, and this is what we've just seen quoted, he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What an incredible account. God says, I'm going to bless you. From your offspring is going to come one who will bless all the nations of the world, not just the Jews, this new nation that I'm starting with you, but all the Gentiles, all the Goyim, all the ethne of the world shall be blessed as well. Why? Because one Savior is going to come for all people. So Abraham, that's wonderful, but I don't have a child yet. Step outside. Look up at the sky. You ever been out? I remember in Kansas, I camped out in the middle of the night, driving to Colorado to go to an institute in biblical studies, and, and I looked out. I'd never seen before or after so many stars in my whole life. It just seemed like there was a million stars. Abraham, you see all those stars? That's what your descendants will be like. 
Now, by the way, you should put out in the margin Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, because there the Spirit of God gives us some divine commentary on what he heard that night. It was not just a faith that he was going to have a lot of stars, but it went back again to the promise that God had made earlier that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Why? Because Messiah is going to come through your loins. And in Genesis, in Galatians 3 and verse 8, it tells us that on this night, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. And there's only one gospel, and it concerns the death, burial, and the resurrection. And Abraham believed God's word, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, was that a faith of words? Or was that a faith of works? You don't know until 40 years later. So fast forward to Genesis chapter 22. Just a few pages from where you're at, Genesis chapter 22. Isaac is already born. And I want you to notice uh, he's no young man, no little boy, as we'll see in a moment. He's a young man. And in Genesis 22 and verse 1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, his name has been changed at this point, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, if you're reading from the old King James, it does not say God tested Abraham, but God tempted Abraham. And that's because the word test did not exist in the 17th century. And so the reader had to discern from the context, is this a solicitation to evil or is this a test in my life? Well, we know from what we've already read in the book of James that it's not a solicitation to evil. But today, that's the connotation of the word tempt. James will write, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God never tempts man with evil. So today it would be better to render it test. God does test us. So verse 2, he said, take your, now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. What an unspeakable idea. What an incredible request. And some will even slander God and accuse him of violating his own will. And some will just write off the Bible and say it's so inconsistent. It says this over here. It says this over here. It can't be true. And the liberal critic will be quick to say, how can a God of wisdom and mercy and justice and love command Abraham to offer his only son as his sacrifice? Especially since God will later write through Moses and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that child sacrifice practiced by the Canaanites was to be absolutely abhorred. Now, to point out that God stopped Abraham from carrying out the process does not really solve the problem. Because how could God in the first place give an order that was immoral? So to hold that God could ever command one of his children to do wrong would be wrought with difficulty. I think several factors need to be considered when we think about what God asked Abraham to do. Number one, it's very easy for us as parents to project our own emotions into the text of Scripture. And so the idea that if God asks you to take one of your children and to offer one of your children on an altar somewhere as a burnt offering absolutely would be to your abhorrence, the thought repulses you. In addition, it's, it's very easy to look at this situation from the vantage point of the culture. Remember, God condemned what the 
pagan Canaanites did, just as he condemns today. We don't offer our little babies to the God of Moloch, but we offer them in the abortion mills of America. And our new president has made it even more free this week by some of the evil new orders he has outlined. Listen, I pray for our president, and you should too, but when any politician does what is downright evil, I'm going to speak out against it. So here's God. How could he ask Abraham to do this? Well, number one, God is not asking Abraham to offer his only son, and he's his only son. Obviously, he has Ishmael, but he's his only son in terms of the son of promise. That's how it's being used. How could he ask him to offer his only son? Well, God's not going to ask him to offer it to some Canaanite God. He's going to ask him to offer his only son to the one true God. And second, it would not be wrong for Abraham to offer his only son. If you come to that conclusion, then to be consistent, you must also come to the conclusion that it would be wrong for God to give his only son, which is what he did. Isaiah the prophet describing what the Messiah would accomplish. In Isaiah the 53rd chapter, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Do you know that a lot of Jewish people are forbidden to read this section of Scripture? It is an eye-opener if someone will study. I got involved in Isaiah 53. I thought I hadn't studied it in a while, and I started almost a year ago. I have over 300 pages of commentary I've written on it, and I haven't even finished the chapter. It is so rich. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, on him who, on him the Messiah. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He's going to see his spiritual offspring. Why? Because God's going to raise him from the dead. He is not going, as Psalm 16 indicates, he's not going to allow his flesh to undergo decay. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So in this sense, God does not require Abraham to do anything that God would not do himself. Indeed, we will see the command that God gives to Abraham is not simply to test Abraham's faith, but as the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 and verse 19, to provide a type of foreshadowing of what God is going to do through the Messiah. A type is an Old Testament picture of a coming New Testament reality. So God says to Abraham here, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzhak, laughter, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I tell you. And the man never opens his mouth. He simply obeys. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And we read in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place that God, that God had dictated. He saw the place from a distance. Can you imagine how he felt as he looked at Mount Moriah? Then in a few hours, he would watch 
the son whom he loved, the son of promise, be consumed on an altar in fire and turned into ash? Now notice the source of his confidence in verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, these servants, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. I want you to circle that little first-person pronoun we here in verse 5. Abraham's confidence is based on faith, and faith is always based on the Word of God. He says, in essence, we will worship and we will return to you. The boy and I are going up. The boy and I are coming down. The words worship and return are first-person plurals in the Hebrew text. And so the NIV 84 renders it, we will worship, we will come back. The Lexham English Bible renders it, we will worship, we will return. Now, wait a minute. I thought God said to offer him up as a burnt offering to reduce him to smoke and ash. How could Abraham say, we are going to return? Because Abraham came in faith. He knew that God cannot lie. He knew that God never contradicts himself. And he had clung to a promise that God had made in Genesis 21. Through Yitzhak, your descendants shall be named. God promised that he would make a great nation out of Isaac. And that meant that God had to raise Isaac from the dead. And that's where he got him, from the deadness of Sarah's womb and from the deadness of his own body when neither of them had the capacity in which to procreate. And so he believed in faith that God was going to raise him up. He was the son of promise, and God is not like a man that he would ever lie, Moses writes. The writer of the Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. Paul said, God cannot lie. Verse 6, it gets more emotional. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand in his hand, the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Can you imagine? They walk up that hill, the torch, the wood, the knife, knowing that what is about to happen. Again, don't get your theology from some Sunday school coloring book. This is not some little lad, eight or ten years old. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, the Jewish people immediately connects Genesis 22 with the start of chapter 23, where you read that Sarah dies at the age of 127 that would make Isaac 36, possibly 37. They say he was 36 years old, based on their tradition as recorded in the Mishnah, that he died at the age of 36. We do know that it appears from Genesis 21:24 that some considerable time had taken place Because the text says there in Genesis 21, 34, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. It also appears when this event takes place from Genesis 25 and verse 12, Ishmael is already married. In fact, he has 12 children. So the point is, is there's some time that has lagged. And so he may have been 19 or 20, as Pastor Larry pointed out last week. He might be 36. By the way, some Christian theologians think Jesus was 36 when he died because Luke says he was about 30, where if he was, say, 32, maybe 33, and his ministry is three and a half, some count it as four years, depending on the number of Passovers, then that would make him about 36. Well, in either case, it doesn't matter. What matters is he's not a little boy, and you don't have to be a rocket theologian to figure that out by what is taken here in the text. He took the wood, and he laid it on Isaac's back. 
I've carried firewood in my life, and I don't like to carry it uphill. And I never give it to my little grandsons and say, hey, let me load you up. He's no little boy. My father, he said, verse 7. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Hey, dad, we've got some wood, we've got some fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham knows that Isaac is the sacrifice. So he puts him on the altar, and he lifts his knife to plunge it into him. And by the tense of the verb that Hebrews 11 gives us, he had already determined and made up in his mind that he was going to plunge the knife into his chest. But an angel of the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, and he stops him, one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Messiah. Now, by the way, Hebrews eleven nineteen again tells us that Isaac was a type. And this is a rich passage of Scripture. We could spend an hour on it. Think about Isaac. He is a miracle baby. He was born in a womb where, from a human point of view, it was an impossible birth. Even so, Messiah, a virgin will conceive. A baby is going to be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God, the prophet said. Jesus also was a miracle baby. Without a human father, virgin conceived. Isaac carries the wood on his back up Mount Moriah. The Lord Jesus carried the cross on his back. Isaac willingly laid himself on that altar. His daddy was an old man. We could say as much here about the faith of Abraham as we could say about the faith of Isaac. He could have easily stopped Abraham. What are you doing, dad? Have you gone nuts? He let him bind him to that altar. Jesus said, no one will take my life from me. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This is a picture not only of the father giving the son, but also of the son giving himself. Isaac does not resist the will of Abraham. And will you notice the place that took place on Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah is the same place that David offered that offering that stayed the plague. And God said to Solomon in that exact same place where David offered that offering there on Mount Moriah, I want you to build my temple. And the Lord Jesus, he dies on Mount Moriah. We call it Golgotha. The typology is perfect. It's not by accident we studied on Wednesday night. The sacrifice that represented Messiah was always done on the north side of the altar. Why? Because north of the temple, at the peak, 110 feet above that sacred stone on which Abraham was about to offer Isaac, is the place of the skull. Outside the gate, where the Lord Jesus was offered and crucified. And what happens? A, a substitute comes. A ram gets caught in a thicket and wears the thorns around his head. Just like the thorns are around the head of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And we read that God told him to go and sacrifice his son. And the text says in verse 4, it's not filler. It was a three days journey. Why does God include that? Because in the mind of Abraham in faith, he was as good as dead from the time he left. 
but he knew that God would raise him on that day. And so it is not by accident that the scriptures say the Messiah died, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now wonder the Lord Jesus could say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. I could spend hours on this, but we'll never finish James. But think about this for a moment. All of a sudden, Isaac disappears from the pages of Scripture. And when do we see him next? We see him next when he's about to get a bride. And after our Lord disappears and he ascends to heaven, when are we going to see him next? When he comes back for his bride, the church. Friend, every single word in this book is inspired. No man could have ever thought this up. Now, don't miss the point that I want to make. Was this a faith of words or a faith of works? It was a faith of works. Abraham's works confirmed that what he had said 40 years later in heart, his heart was absolutely true. So James looks at Abraham. Look at verse 21 of James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Yes, he was. That's Genesis 22. That's 40 years after he believed. Now his justification is vindicated. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. That's Genesis 15. In what sense was the scripture fulfilled? Not in terms of getting salvation, but in terms of proving salvation. And so now he quotes Genesis 15, vindicating that Abraham's faith was real. And so James is able to say here in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now let me conclude quickly. In verse 25, he turns to another real life illustration. And it's even in some respects even more fantastic and the contrast couldn't be starker. He goes to Rahab. Abraham's a Jew. She's a Gentile. He's inside the covenant community. She's outside of it. He's highly respected. She's highly rejected. He's a saint. She's a streetwalker. But both of them end up in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot. How do you like to have that as your handle? And by the way, that handle, Rahab the harlot, it stuck for centuries. I mean, how would you like to go around with him? What's your name? I'm Joe the drug addict. Hey, I want you to meet my friend Joe the drug addict. What's your name? I'm Joe the pervert. I mean, listen, this is a handle that she carried for throughout her whole life. And the writer of the Hebrews uses it. And the word harlot is the Greek word porne. It means immoral. She wasn't running an inn there. She was running a den of prostitution. But assuming you know nothing of Rahab's biography, you would at least know from what James provides in this portion of Scripture that we're talking about a faith that a prostitute had that is identical to the faith a patriarch had. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, does this mean that her receiving the messengers saved her? Unthinkable. But again, James is speaking of a faith that vindicated her. 
And if you remember from Joshua chapter 2, when she heard the report from the Israeli spies of what God had done and how he had supernaturally delivered them out of the land of Egypt, the Bible records that her heart melted. And in Joshua 2.11, she said, for the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. That was her confession of faith almost 40 years earlier. And 40 years later, after the wanderings in the wilderness, God vindicates her faith, and she is willing to hide the two spies. And God says, she's got the genuine item. And by the way, you read more of her biography as you come into the New Testament. She marries, by the way, the Old Testament records a man named Salmon. And Salmon and her have a baby by the name of Boaz. And Boaz marries a woman, a Gentile, named Ruth. And they together become, because Jewishness is determined by the dad, they become the great-great-grandfather of King David. And so she shows up in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, because you see, Jesus not only came for sinners, he came through sinners, and so the need for a virgin conception. Then finally, the argument as it is applied. The argument applied, verse 26. Stay with me, I'll be done in two minutes. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's suppose we have a corpse up here and we want to help this corpse to be at its very best. And we bring in the cosmetic people and they dress them up beautifully. We put the nicest suit on them. We want to give them a little culture, so we pay a little, play a little Beethoven and Bach. And we want to educate them, so we bring in the PhDs. In fact, they award him a doctorate. Question, has he changed? Not one bit. He's in the same place. He's dead. All those things you do on the outside will never give life. James's point, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith without works is dead. A faith that, is not, that does not work is no more alive than a body without a spirit. Because the moment a person dies, the spirit leaves and it never returns. So don't you believe these crazy out-of-body experiences? Maybe they were oxygen-deprived, but they weren't dead because it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. Listen, I'm afraid for some of the people, even a few here this morning, and some that are listening to me online. And you would do well to heed the words of the Apostle Paul when he spoke to the Corinthians, because he was not convinced that though they had the right confession, that they had really been regenerated. And so he says, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. And listen, if Satan can convince you that you are saved when you are not, he's got you right where he wants you. And James is writing this little letter, and he's saying, listen, if your faith has not truly changed you, where you have a new pulsating drive to live out the righteousness that God has imputed to your account, then you have every reason to question whether or not you have real faith. 
Jesus doesn't go for a ho-hum example, but for the most dramatic example, people who preached in his name, who cast out demons in his name, who did miracles in his name, and all three are authenticated in both sides of the Bible that even an unbeliever can do, and he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. What do you mean, I never knew you? I thought you were the omniscient God. You don't know my name? I never knew you in terms of a relationship because this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. I never knew you because you had an empty faith. You had a demonic faith. You had a profession without possession. You had reverence without repentance. And the churches in America, and I'm talking about the evangelical churches, are filled with people just like that. A real faith produces a commandable life. And if Christ cannot command you, my friend, he has never saved you. Now, Holy Father, as best I know how I've preached this text... And I pray today for someone listening who has a phony faith, and may you work and stir only as you are able. May you bring them to genuine repentance. Thank you for the wonder of this book that you inspired. No man could have ever thought it up. How grateful we are for its nourishment. Thank you that it challenges our heart. And it causes us to love you more. We know faith is like a muscle and that as it's exercise, it grows. So, Lord, increase our faith as we walk with you. We ask in your name. Amen.